Our passage this morning is Acts 20, 17 to the end of the chapter. You can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 929. Acts 20, 17 through the end of the chapter, page 929 in your Pew Bible. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this, in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, be sorrow, being sorrowful most of all because the word of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied, and they accompanied him to the ship. Good morning, Bethel. Uh, good to see you all, and uh, great to meet some of you this morning. So it's a real privilege to be here. My wife, Christina's with me. We have uh, four boys, as Heller mentioned, uh, back home in the Indianapolis area. 
And so it's great to be here with you all. So we've known Chris and Beth for 15 years. I remember first time I came into contact with Chris, Christina and I, um, I think you were with me on that Sunday, I can't remember now, um, it was 2004, we came to Grace Church of DuPage, went to the college ministry, and Chris was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought, I'm staying at this church. So uh, grateful uh, for that. And then in 2007, I was considering going to seminary, wasn't sure where to go around the same time. Chris was uh, mentoring um, uh, people to become pastors as a pastoral ministry training program, and so I knew I wanted to go to seminary, but I wasn't sure where. Some of my top choices were um, leaving the area we were at, but I knew uh, one thing, even though I didn't know where I wanted to go to seminary, that if Chris was willing to mentor me, I was staying right where I was. And so I stayed, and I'm grateful. Um, so I think of so much of who I am and how I think about pastoral ministry has been shaped by Chris, and I'm so grateful for that. And that could be uh, misleading because really so much of who I am and how I think about pastoral ministry is shaped by Jesus and the Apostle Paul and books like 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy, and that's because that's what Chris taught me, and that's who he showed me uh, as a model for ministry. So that's why I'm excited to consider Acts 20 with you all this morning. Well, I do encourage you to open up again to Acts 20 if you have closed it or if you haven't opened it yet. That's on page 929 of the Pew Bibles there, and this is one of my favorite uh, texts in the Bible on pastoral ministry, and it seems to be, at least in my experience, overlooked because it's embedded in this larger book of Acts, this story of the early church. And so it's actually quite a striking text. This comes at a significant turning point in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, this great church planter and theologian and missionary in the early uh, church period. Paul has been planning churches already. He's been strengthening churches. He's been traveling and revisiting places and strengthening churches and going from city to city doing this and making disciples. And now, in Acts 20, in this surrounding area, he's shifting his focus. This is a turning point in his life and ministry. He's actually wrapping up his final missionary journey, as we call it, and he's now heading to Jerusalem. And then he'll go on to Rome, and he doesn't know what's in store for him, but he does know suffering is coming and perhaps death. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem, and as he's traveling there, he's getting close to this city called Ephesus. And he knew the people in Ephesus because he spent over two years there uh, preaching the gospel from home to home and in the city and making disciples and appointing elders. And so he's coming back near this city, and so he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to come meet him, which would have been about a four days journey, and they came to him. And he knew that this was probably the last time that he'd be able to see them because his ministry is not going to consist um, of traveling around to this area again, planting churches and strengthening churches because he's now headed toward Jerusalem, uh, more specifically to suffering. And so he's giving these elders a vision for pastoral ministry in the coming generation and the generations to come after them. So that's what this text gives us. This exists us in part to give pastors and churches a clear vision for pastoral ministry and local church ministry. So I think that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, intends this speech to be included for our sake today. It's unique in the book of Acts. Luke has shown Paul planting churches and making disciples and appointing elders and strengthening churches. But we haven't really learned, at least in the book of Acts, 
what elders are supposed to do, what pastors are supposed to do, what should local church ministry look like in detail. And so now Luke shows Paul's model of pastoral leadership. He shows what elders and pastors are supposed to be like and to do. He gives really a brief, Paul's brief practical theology of pastoral ministry here. So we may ask today, what would the Apostle Paul say if he were here at Bethel this morning? What would the Apostle Paul say to a man who's been a pastor of a local church for 10 years in one area? What would the Apostle Paul say to this pastor's fellow elders and pastors? What would he say to the church about what they should expect from their pastors and elders? Well, I think that's pretty close to what we have in Acts 20. So how should we receive this text today? It applies differently to different people. So this is God's word to you today, Chris, and other ministry leaders here as well, but certainly to you. These are God's words. Acts 20 is what the Holy Spirit says to you today about pastoral ministry in your life and your vocation. So my role this morning is to do what Peter said in 2 Peter 1, to stir you up by way of reminder. And second, this is God's word for other elders and pastors, Greg, and others here. Um, thankfully, Paul did not just come near Ephesus and call one man to him to encourage that one man about the burden and responsibility that he has to bear in overseeing a church. He called the elders of the church to him. And what a blessing that is for there to be a team that leads a local church and under God bears that responsibility. So elders of Bethel, you are to receive this as God's word to you as well this morning, and you'll be a blessing to Chris as you receive that as well. And third, this is God's word for the local church, the whole church here this morning. This shows us all how to pray for Chris and for other leaders. It shows us how to thank God for him. It shows us what to expect from him. It shows us how to encourage Chris and other leaders. So, what does Acts 20 then say about gospel ministry? Well, Paul teaches us in this text in two ways. I think Luke, the author, is presenting Paul as an example for pastoral ministry, both in his example and in his exhortation and encouragement. So, Paul is really giving these elders um, a model for pastoral ministry. He's using his own life as an example at parts here, and he's also exhorting them so that's how we learn about pastoral ministry in this text. And here's what we see from this. We see several marks, really essential marks of gospel ministry. Um, it'd be great to cover all of them. Uh, there's many here, so we'll see a few of them. We'll look at sev seven of these marks, seven marks of gospel ministry. So let's consider each of them here. So the first mark is steady encouragement. And by encouragement, I have in mind this idea of building others up and strengthening people. Paul was continually doing this in his life and ministry. So before we look more closely at the text that Beth read for us um, at this section, look back a little bit at, at verse 1 of this chapter, of chapter 20. Paul is actually in chapter 20, verse 1, in Ephesus at a previous time. He has just spent over two years there planting the church, but he's about to be driven out because the effect of the gospel in that culture has caused a disturbance, as it often does and should do. 
as people are coming to Christ, they're starting to uh, change their priorities and preferences. They're starting to uh, burn their magic books and no longer buy these little silver idols in the town, and that's causing an economic crisis of those who are making money off these idols. So a riot is going on in Ephesus, and Paul's going to be driven out. And so in Acts 20, verse 1, we see Paul's final moments with the church in Ephesus at that point. And it says this, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So this uproar is because of Paul's ministry. He's at risk of being thrown into prison, or worse, and the one thing that Paul had on his mind to do was to encourage the brothers and sisters there. And then look at verse 2. When he had gone through those regions, so he's off now, and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So that's a summary of Paul's ministry as he, as he travels. You want to know what the Apostle Paul was doing? He was giving people much encouragement. That's a summary statement. That's Paul's ministry. Another word used throughout the book of Acts repeatedly to refer to the focus of Paul's ministry was the word, is the word strengthening. Paul encouraged people, and he strengthened people. And so now he's traveling back near Ephesus, and he doesn't want to miss the opportunity to encourage and strengthen the church at Ephesus through the elders. So he calls them to visit him. It would have taken a four days journey or so for them to get there, and he wants to strengthen them. So one of Paul's primary agendas for his life and ministry was encouragement. I wonder if that surprises you. I was talking with a pastor friend in the Indianapolis area, and he is doing some doctoral studies, and the focus of his studies is on encouragement in the local church. And as we talked about this, he said that as he's begun studying this, he's found that there's hardly any material out there. Hardly anyone has written on encouragement in the local church. So that should be surprising in light of how central that was for the Apostle Paul and in the New Testament. I mean, look at him here. This was one of the primary things he did. For Paul, the call to ministry is the call to encouragement. And this isn't just true for Paul. This is a model for minis of ministry that Jesus shows us. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the ministry of Jesus when he would arrive. He, he called the coming one the servant or a servant. And he spoke about what this servant would do. He would rescue God's people through a, his death and resurrection. And it also says this, how he'd lead God's people. Isaiah 50, 50 verse 4 says this, The Lord has given me, so this is the servant who's speaking, the, Jesus in the future. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. So, one of the reasons why Jesus came, why the Son of God came to the world was to sustain the weary with a word. And this is the whole purpose of the Bible. You know, the Apostle Paul refers to the purpose of the Bible. In Romans 15, 4, he refers to the whole Old Testament. So as you think about the Old Testament, just look down at your Bible right now, that giant section before the New Testament. What is that doing there in your lap? Why did God put this here? 
Here's what Paul says. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So there's a progression here. The Scriptures are given so that we might have instruction, and through that instruction, we might have encouragement, and through that encouragement, we might have hope. So that's what we're called to do for one another. Instruct that we might encourage, that we might give each other hope. There's many statements in the New Testament that refer to how we, we are to treat one another. We call them the one another's. And there is not one one another in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, that says discourage one another. There's not one in the New Testament that we can find that says criticize one another or remain aloof from one another because your life's so important that you can't invest in one another. But I can find a few that say encourage one another. And the verse that you all looked at last Sunday, Ephesians 4.29, and that I listened to a few days after you did as I was mowing the lawn, as I often do when I'm mowing the lawn, I turn on the podcast and sometimes listen to the sermons that you all hear. Ephesians 4.29, speak only such as is good for building up, strengthening, encouraging, that it may give grace to those who hear. So that's what the Bible says should be the filter for every single word we ever speak. Speak only what is good for building up. Now that can take many different forms, right? It can even be rebuke. But the goal is instruction, that it might encourage, that it might in the end give hope. So pastors are to be the chief encouragers of the local church. Leaders are to be the pace setters in giving encouragement. Now, I'm, I'm reminded here of a moment when Christina and I had a professor into our home early in our marriage, and he uh, looked at Christina and he said, uh, Christina Michelle, that's how he talked, uh, is Drew treating you like a gentleman? And uh, she said, yes. And he said, mm, I thought so. And then I realized there, that was a really risky moment, right? I mean, he's there. What if the answer was no? Um, thankfully, he, he thought he had a sense of what the answer would be. So I feel like that's my role this morning. I'm saying pastors are to be the chief encouragers, and I know Chris well enough to know that there's minimal risk in saying that, and that we can thank God for Chris's encouragement and others. So Chris, you do that for me. You speak encouragement into my life. You have for a number of years, and I thank God for you. And it's been steady, reminding me of God's promise and often speaking direct encouragement into my life. So, keep going. And the Lord will sustain you with his word as well. And Bethel, if Chris is a pace setter in giving encouragement, it's both for your encouragement and for you to continue on in cultivating that culture among yourselves. So, every member of a local church has a sacred responsibility before the Lord to cultivate a culture of encouragement in giving strength and hope and sustaining the weary with a word. So we're called to uh, publicly thank God for one another, to look each other in the eye and tell each other why we respect each other and why we thank God for one another, and to give each other texts and email encouragements 
and sincere encouragement. So if you need other ideas, uh, listen to the sermon from last week that was preached from this podium. Second mark of gospel ministry is servant-minded humility. So the Ephesian elders have now traveled a few days to receive this strengthening from Paul, and Paul begins his instruction by giving himself as an example to them for pastoral ministry. He says in verses 18 and 19, you can read it with me, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Now stop there. Something important is about to come next, right? He begins, you yourselves know how I lived among you. So how did the Apostle Paul live among them? And that was over two years. How did he do it? Here's a summary. Serving the Lord with all humility. He also adds, this is through many trials and tears. That would be another mark of gospel ministry that's underneath all of these trials and tears, the context of pastoral ministry. Uh, But here he says that in the midst of those trials and tears, he served the Lord with all humility. So just notice three things here. First, he was serving. So the Apostle Paul viewed ministry, and he's putting himself as an example to pastors as a ministry of service. Servant leadership has become pretty popular in our culture, and that's a good thing. It's tapping into something that the Apostle Paul was speaking about 2,000 years ago, and Paul learned it from Jesus himself. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many to die in our place. Second, Paul didn't say that he was serving other people, though that's true. He said he was serving the Lord. He was serving Jesus, which means he viewed ministry, which had a very horizontal reality to it, right? One anothering. He viewed it primarily as a way in which he was serving the Lord. So there was a, there was a primarily a, a vertical orientation to Paul's life and ministry here. So his, he's saying that pastoral ministry should be a vertically oriented ministry of service to others. And then third, he served with all humility. So the Apostle Paul had a posture of humility in his life. This means that he served with self-awareness and an acknowledgement of his own weaknesses, an open acknowledgement of his own weaknesses, as we see on the pages of the letters that he wrote and have been preserved for us. He considered others more significant than himself. You know, Chris pressed this lesson into my life in a unique way a number of years ago. So as part of the pastoral training ministry, I had a, it was two years, it was an apprenticeship with him, and in the summers the hours were ratcheted up a bit. And when those hours were ratcheted up, it wasn't for the sake uh, only of more reading and more study and more writing and more practical ministry experience. You know what Chris had me do in those extra hours? Clean bathrooms and mow the grass of the church property. So for five hours every week, I scrubbed toilets and I walked behind a lawnmower and mowed around a pond. And across that summer, he also had me memorize scriptures that taught this biblical vision of pastoral ministry, of humble service. Texts like Mark 10, 42 to 45, which says this, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, Jesus says to his apprentices, his disciples. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And from 1 Corinthians 4, part of which says this about apostolic ministry. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Welcome to pastoral ministry, Drew. Sometimes I listen to music as I did this as well, and as I thought back to these memories, I had a vivid memory of pushing a cleaning cart from one bathroom to another through the building, listening to Bob Dylan, just one song over and over, you got to serve somebody whom I think, I think Chris was the one who introduced me to that song. So that season of life had a, an impact on me, a profound impact on me. And one of the reasons why it did was because Chris modeled this in his own life. And as I think back, if Chris didn't model that in his own life, but he assigned those tasks to me, you know, it would have seemed like he was just putting me to work until I arrived at real pastoral ministry as though it's kind of putting me through some pastoral hazing or some cheap labor until I could finally arrive at real pastoral ministry that didn't have anything to do with that. But instead I realized and learned from his example and from these that the lesson was humble service is pastoral ministry. It doesn't take much looking around to know that the American church scene has a great gap here in thinking about leadership in terms of humble service. So the church that has a humble servant-minded leader, imperfect though he may be, is one that is deeply blessed by the Lord. Now these first two marks raise a question. If pastors are to be encouragers and humble servants, how do they encourage and serve? What do they say to strengthen people? And the answer is the third mark, gospel-centered teaching. Paul served by preaching and teaching the gospel to them, and he encouraged these elders and pastors to do the same. Verse 20 continues his statement about serving. So we have a sense of where, what he means by humble service. He says this, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of this, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues to refer to his teaching ministry in the following verses. Look at a few of these with me. At the end of verse 24, he summarizes his teaching as testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's ministry, his words, were all about bearing witness to the incredibly great news of the grace of God. Verse 24, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And my favorite is verse 32. The word of God's grace, which is able to build you up, strengthen you, encourage you. So this is a primary way that leaders of a local church encourage and serve. They do it through God's word and the gospel on Sundays and throughout the week in one-on-one -on -one conversations and group conversations and Sunday mornings. And he says in verse 20 that he taught them what was profitable. Paul was convinced that God's Word is what is profitable. And so therefore, his view of ministry was not to necessarily give people his words mainly, but to use his words in service of God's Word, because God's Word is what's profitable. So John Calvin was a faithful local church pastor in Geneva in the 1500s. 
Chris and I read through his Institutes of the Christian Religion uh, together, and that was a great season. And Calvin was committed to teaching God's Word. He taught on Sundays twice. He taught every day through the week on alternating weeks. People would come to hear him teach throughout the week. And so he gave his life to speaking words, God's words, delivering God's words to people because he had a very clear but simple conviction. Here's how John Calvin put it. The purpose of Scripture is to do us good. I mean, that's simple, maybe obvious, but if we really believe that and act on it at a functional level, it means that we will be always eager to hear God's Word. We would be a Bible people, Bible reading people, We would love hearing God's Word and talking about God's Word because we believe that God uses His Word to do us good. And notice the sense of responsibility that Paul has in this task. He says in verse 26, I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul has a sense of sacred responsibility to give God's Word away, to declare the truth of God's Word regularly. So, Chris, I've met few people in my life who are as earnest about the Bible and Jesus and the grace of God than you. And we hear this in your sermons. I hear it as I listen to your sermons over the years, and I'm grateful for that sense of sacred responsibility that you have. And so, as a church family, I encourage you to join in cultivating with one another the sense of sacred responsibility and thanking God for that where you see it. Now, the fourth mark Paul gives for pastoral ministry is personal integrity, particularly critical for our day. Leaders are falling one after another in our day. The Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, they're exposing hypocrisy, and we see corruption in leaders, and we can't respect them at institutions all across our culture, including in churches. And Paul would never say that the church should get a pass on this. Paul would say that the church should be the cultural pace setter for moral integrity in leadership and the cultural pace setter for dealing with it well when it's a problem. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. It's striking to me that he didn't just say pay attention to the flock pay attention to the church. He says something first because it's a prerequisite for spiritual leadership. It's a non-negotiable. Keep a close watch on yourself. So what does this look like? What does this look like uh, for ministry leaders? What does it look like for you and me, Chris? A few things. First, we need to keep a close watch on our teaching, our doctrine, our theology, We need to be Bible men. We need to be, as you taught me, Psalm 1 men who meditate on God's Word day and night throughout the day. We also need to keep a close watch, secondly, on our hearts. We need to have hearts warmed by Christ and His Word. We need to have hearts stirred with affection for Him because we can't pour water out of an empty cup. We can't just be pace-setters in thinking right thoughts about Jesus, but we need to be pace-setters in feeling right affections warm affections toward him. So you taught me to take my heart's temperature and then seek Christ and his word for the warming that I need. And third, we need to watch our lives, our character, our actions, our words. 
because we're still sinners, it means that the lead pastor is to be the lead repenter of the church. So I need this reminder, and we all need this reminder to be vigilant, joy-seeking disciples of Jesus who seek communion with Him. But pastors don't just keep a watch on themselves. They keep a watch on the flock. So the fifth mark is careful shepherding. He says in verse 28, they're to pay careful attention to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The idea of shepherd is where we get the word pastor. So Paul views the members of a local church as sheep and the pastors as both sheep and also shepherds. So it's a weighty responsibility because of the preciousness of sheep to the Lord. We see this language here that God bought the church with his own blood, referring to the blood of Jesus, Jesus as God here, one of these explicit statements in the New Testament of the divinity of Jesus Christ. The church is bought by God at the cost of his, God's own blood, namely the Son of God's own blood, Jesus Christ. So every single sheep is purchased by God By the blood of Jesus, every member of a local church matters deeply to God, and so every member of a local church should matter to every member of the local church. So as we gather here on Sundays and throughout the week and we look at each other, we should see each other as people who are purchased by Jesus Christ, precious to God, and therefore precious to us personally. And then we speak to each other out of that posture and out of that clear awareness of the preciousness of every person. So one of the ways that elders guard and shepherd the flock that Paul draws attention to is through guarding teaching, guarding it from wolves as he refers to them. Paul refers to wolves who teach and lead astray. So these people can come from outside of the church, influenced through uh, the radio or other books or locally. They can also come from within the church. Paul warns, even says, this this can come, rise from within you, from among you. So one way that, um, one thing that I'm always encouraged by is when a member of uh, the local church where I serves asks me what I think about a particular book because there's so many people that are reading so many things and uh, I don't know what those are, but if they invite me to have a conversation with them, it gives me an opportunity to speak to them um, about, let's talk about that author. And sometimes there's very damaging, dangerous things um, and we have an opportunity to talk about that together. Sixth mark, true friendship. So after Paul's speech, he prayed with these elders. And notice the affection in verse 37 here. They're all weeping. They they embrace Paul. They kissed him on the cheek, which would have been an appropriate cultural expression of affection and friendship. And then they went to him with his ship, to his ship to send him away. So ministry is personal. It involves sharing life together. It involves getting into each other's lives. It involves loving one another deeply. And so this group of men that Paul's talking to here, these elders, are not hesitant at all, it seems, to express affection toward one another. So this is something that men especially have lost in our culture, by and large, and we need to regain because every one of us needs this. Every man and woman, every age needs to have other people, brothers and sisters in Christ especially, look them in the eye and say, I love you, and here's what I respect about you, and here's what I thank the Lord for in your life. Here's where I see God working in your life. 
here's how you've been an encouragement to me and you may have no idea. Um, so expressed affection and saying we're grateful for friendship. And every pastoral leader needs this as well. Every leadership team should have something of this camaraderie and affection that these elders have here with Paul, weeping together even. I remember when um, I was meeting with Chris and the elders at Grace Church of DuPage 10 years ago and just a few months. Um, so in 2009, as he was preparing to come to you all here um, in Delaware, so we were, I was meeting with the elders and Chris to talk about the transition of the college ministry. Chris was going to be entrusting that to me um, in those coming days, and so I felt overwhelmed by that responsibility. At the same time, felt incredibly sad that Chris was leaving. And so I sat there around that elders' table trying to keep it together and uh, not cry. And Chris said something to me I'll never forget. Um, he, I can't remember if we opened to it or you just quoted Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Uh, as uh, you know, Moses has ended his ministry and Joshua is taking uh, the leadership, uh, it says this from the Lord, and I have written in the margin of my Bible, Chris McGarvey, to me at elders meeting 2009. And it says this from the Lord to Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And Chris, you said to me, God will not let you drown. And so I quickly left and then cried. And you probably didn't know that. <laughs> and I'm grateful for our friendship over these past years as it's continued. Now at the end of the chapter, we see everyone crying because Paul's leaving. They'll never see him again. Uh, so what does that mean for us today? As far as I know, we're not wrapping the service up by walking Chris to a ship um, and sending him away. So here's how we discern the message for us. Ask this question. Why are they all weeping here? And the answer is because when they were together for those years, they formed deep bonds of friendship and they had great joy together. So every single tear that was dropped on that day was really in honor of that friendship and joy that they experienced together. So here's the truth. Uh, Chris, as far as I know, is not leaving on a ship today. Um, but one day, all of us will leave. Life's a vapor. Uh, we don't know when any one of us, including Chris, will be taken by the Lord, either in death or some other reason. We, we all live with this uncertainty, yet great confidence in God. And so here's what Acts 20 shows us then. We want to live together now, in this day, in this week, in this year, in this 10 years or 40 years or however long the Lord gives you all. We want to live together now in such a way with such joy and peace and unity and delight and friendship so that when the days come, when we leave each other, it will hurt. Not because we like that pain, but because that pain is a testimony to just how good it is to live together as God's people. So, the sad goodbye of Acts 20 is ultimately an encouragement to enjoy life together now as God's people and with God. So enjoy your teaching pastor, your lead pastor. Enjoy your friendships. Enjoy your community groups. 
Enjoy your life together. Seventh and last, grace-dependent. That's the last mark. Dependent on God and especially His grace in Jesus. It's in verse 32. He commends them to God, but not only to God. So read this with me. What a wonderful statement here. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. So the word of God's grace is not just what we need to hear in order to initially trust in Jesus and then learn other kinds of words. The word of God's grace is what we need to keep growing and be strengthened and be built up. Martin Luther, people asked him, why do you keep talking about the same thing all the time, Sunday after Sunday? It's just grace in the gospel all the time. And he said, because I need to keep beating it into our heads so we don't forget it because it looks like we don't believe it. Right, so that's what we need to do for one another. That's what we need Sunday after Sunday. We need the grace of God again and again and again because that is the message that builds us up. That's the message that strengthens us. And Paul is saying that to elders, um, which is encouraging, these, these mature pace setters for a congregation. And this is what we all need then. So Jesus then is really at the center of all of the marks that we've seen here in the chapter. His, God's message of grace through Jesus is at the heart of this all. All of these marks are really here because of who Jesus is, uh, because He's the true shepherd, the one whom Peter called the chief shepherd or senior pastor, the one who called himself the good shepherd. So let's just end these last few moments by putting our attention directly on Him. Our attention has been on Him, but let's put it directly on Him. Jesus is the shepherd who as we noted in the first mark, encourage us, encourages us with His Word. He's the one who passes along these words that sustain the weary. In fact, the leaders of a church can only give deep encouragement as they pass along the words of God. Jesus is also the one who serves us with humility. Paul says here he didn't count his life as of any value or as precious to himself, if he could only complete his ministry that he received from Jesus, he not only received his ministry, his commission from Jesus, he received his model of ministry from Jesus. And so he sees that Jesus is the one who did not count his own life as precious to himself, but if only he could complete the ministry that he received from his Father, which he joyfully did complete, but through suffering and through death and through self-sacrifice with humble service. Jesus is also the center of all of the teaching that gives the encouragement. Jesus is the only leader with comprehensive personal integrity. We will never find any corruption in Jesus as a leader. There will never be any true accusations against His character. He is the true leader we all long for. He's the good shepherd who has careful shepherding over his flock. He watches over us. He's the one who gave his own blood for his sheep. And Jesus is the true friend. He's the one who is our faithful friend. He's the one who lets us all the way into his deepest hearts, and he stays with us to the very end. So here's what's so striking to me and fitting for today. Paul is saying all of this to elders, to pastors, and he says that they need this message in order to be built up and strengthened. So Jesus is the chief shepherd of Bethel. Uh, he is the one who cares for every true church. So God, this triune God, is a fountain of goodness. 
And we can think of his blessings as just overflowing like Niagara Falls. Never been there, but I've heard about it. Uh, waterfall, just endless flowing, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing as he opens our eyes to behold him and to know him and to enjoy him and to enjoy all of the gifts he gives us so that we receive the, the blessings of this even good earth with thankfulness to him and enjoying him through all of this. He's a fountain of goodness and his grace comes to us over and over. So our job is to kind of stand under this overflowing love of God with our little thimble and try to catch as much of that as we can and then just let that overflow onto others around us. Just be filled and strengthened with God's grace and then pass. There's plenty to pass along to everyone else. So that's our job as Christians, disciples of Jesus, as church leaders, as elders, as pastors, as teachers. So, Chris, we commend you to the grace or to God and to the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all the saints. And Bethel, we commend you to, the, to God and to his grace, the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are turning our attention to you because we acknowledge that we've just been hearing from your word in Acts 20, and we're grateful. We trust that you've answered our prayer that we prayed earlier, that you would use your word to comfort and convict and encourage and strengthen. And so we thank you that you have been present among us by your spirit, doing what only you can do, and so we receive and reflect on even this past 45 minutes together and this past service and are so grateful for the way that you've served us this morning through the singing, through conversations, through the reading of your word, through prayers, through Acts 20, and as we've considered this today. And so we're grateful to you. We thank you that Jesus has been sent to sustain our weary hearts and souls with a word and we thank you for your plan to raise up people among us to serve in leadership and pastoral ministry. And so we're grateful for this day, and we're grateful for your word, and we continue to be reliant on you. And so we receive this commendation for all of us to be in your care. And we want to be receiving the word of your grace moment by moment, day after day, from now through eternity to be built up and strengthened and encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.